Welcome all to this, the second session of our political thought seminar sponsored by the Middle East Center at St. Anthony's College, Oxford. It's really a pleasure to have with us today Professor Madhavi Al-Rashid and Professor Pascal Menoret, both speaking on Saudi Arabia and religion, specifically in Saudi Arabia. Uh, my name is Faisal Devji, and I'm joined by Sama Al-Azmi. The both of us are conveners of the seminar, and let me just say a couple of words about how we will proceed. Osama will shortly introduce our speakers. We will have the talks by Madawi, followed immediately by that by Pascal, and then take questions at the end. If you have questions, please write them in the Q&A box or in the chat box, and we shall come to them. And don't wait until the end of the talks. You can write your questions anytime during them. So much looking forward to this second session and over to you, Osama. Thank you so much, Faisal. And welcome, everyone, and especially a warm welcome to both Madawi and Pascal beaming in from... Madawi, of course, is a local for us and sometimes a local for us within Oxford. You've, you've come in and spent time with us quite a few times. And uh, Pascal is beaming in from the northeast of the United States. I'm going to briefly introduce Madawi, and then, inshallah, Madawi, you can take uh, 20 minutes or so for your lecture. As you've requested, I will give you a heads up when your time is running out. And then I will briefly introduce Pascal and uh, take things from there. According to the same format, as Faisal has highlighted, please do put in your questions early, just so that we're able to capture them within the Q&A period. Uh, so that means while we're going midstream. So Madawi is no stranger to us at the Middle East Centre. Um, she's a visiting professor uh, at the London School of Economics at their Middle East Centre. And she has spent uh, a long career, a very prolific career, working at institutions around the world, including the National University of Singapore, at King's College for a, um, a period of, I want to say about 20 years, you were a professor of anthropology of religion. And uh, also recently, well, relatively recently, you uh, became a fellow of the British Academy among a whole litany of awards and prizes. Also a very prolific author, your most recent book, Madawi's most recent book is The Sun King, Reform and Repression in Saudi Arabia, um, published in 2020 with Hurston OUP. But in addition to academic writings, uh, books, journal articles, she's also very prolific in the media space. So very much um, a in a sense, a public humanities scholar, public, uh, an engagé scholar, shall we say. So with that, we look forward to your presentation on Saudi Arabia. Thank you very much. Thank you, Osama, and thank you, Faisal, for organizing this uh, timely seminar. Islamic political thought is extremely important at this specific moment in the contemporary history of the Muslim world in general, uh, the Arab world, and specifically Saudi Arabia, the top, our case study today. The title of my presentation is uh, The Islamic Reformist Movement in Saudi Arabia, and uh, it is between the violence of the minority and the apathy of the majority. Um, I'll, I'll explain my uh, uh, title in due course. But uh, let me start by just a little definition to focus our mind when we uh, invoke Islamic reform. What do we mean? 
Who are we talking about? As far as I'm concerned, I regard Islamic reform as first an intellectual movement within the Muslim world in general and Saudi Arabia, although Saudi Arabia is not usually uh, associated with the term reform when it comes to Islam. But we we shall see that uh, Saudi Arabia has, uh, its intellectuals has uh, joined the trend within the Muslim world that somebody might say, not only started with the modern reformers, uh, we always talk about um, Muhammad Abdu, Al-Afghani, etc. But it has a very, very long history that goes back to medieval times within the Islamic tradition. So first, it's an intellectual movement. It has its ideologues um, and it has its discourses. In a way, it's a debating club within uh, the world of Islam in which participants are scholars, religious uh, ulama, what we call recently also Muslim thinkers or Mufakkir Islami, intellectuals, uh, literate people who have entered the public sphere uh, with their ideas and with their pen. Also, this uh, uh, intellectual trend in modern times has its advocates and it has its activism. So it's not only a theoretical position, a discourse, but it's also translated into activism by engaged religious scholars or intellectuals. So uh, what, what is so reformist and what is so modern about these? We, we invoke the word uh, modern, but I, I prefer to call them Muslim uh, reformers or Islahiyun. And these people take a position when it comes to interpreting the body of the Islamic tradition, which consists of the Quran, the Hadith, and also what we call the interpretive tradition, meaning the the old uh, texts of old Islamic scholars, which is not sacred, but it is their interpretation. So it's a, a debating movement that looks at this body of knowledge that Muslims have accumulated over 14th century in order to uh, reach a novel, some would say rational interpretation of these texts, trying to push aside anything that is not subjected to some kind of rational debate and discussion. So uh, this is in briefly, really, my, my uh, talk is not going to be based on religious studies or theological arguments, but I would like to look at the political implication of this kind of trend or movement. So in all Muslim societies from Malaysia, Indonesia, Africa, even among Muslims in the West, we find this kind of reformist tradition. And they, they the scholars, the ideologues, if you like, argue against certain dominant positions within, I must say, the Sunni tradition. I'm not going to look at the Shia tradition, which has its own reformers, but this is beyond my expertise. So in Saudi Arabia, this reformist trend uh, argues against an entrenched Wahhabi tradition, which had been the dominant religious tradition 
at the state level, I would say since the 18th century, although Saudi Arabia had, especially its different regions, other traditions. But with the establishment of the modern state in 1932, we the background to this Islamic reform movement is the Wahhabi tradition that is sometimes referred to as the Salafi movement. And there is a very big debate about whether the Wahhabis, all Wahhabis are Salafis or uh, Salafis are Wahhabis. That's another debate. We could discuss it later. So basically in Saudi Arabia, what prompted me to look at this trend is when I was researching a book called Contesting the Saudi State, and I was looking at the dominant state religion, namely Wahhabiya, and the offshoots that has sprung out of it. The book was published in 2007. And in the last chapter, I came across a movement that I called, um, the chapter is called Searching for the Unmediated Word of God. And this is basically what the Salafis claim. Salafis claim is that uh, we reach God through his words without the mediation of anybody, of a religious scholar. We are all equal. If we are literate, pious, we could reach the religious texts and, and reach our own interpretation. But everybody does it and everybody reaches a different interpretation, perhaps. So this trend um, that started, I would say, from the 1990s and developed in Saudi Arabia, they, they are called al-Islahiyun. And scholarly work on this trend had labeled them as the rationalist or the liberals. I prefer not to draw, uh, not to rely on such labels because they are really misleading. As scholars of, of Muslim societies and the Islamic tradition, I prefer to invoke the words they use rather than parachute a label such as the liberal Islamist or the liberal Muslims parachute it and use it to describe uh, people and discourses that may or may not correspond to this so-called liberal. So the word liberal, I don't think it travels well in other cultures, and we have to rely on the uh, local conception of the self and the activity that those people are doing. So this trend that I would call the reformist uh, emerged out of the kind of Islamism that dominated the Muslim world since probably the 1960s. And its advocates, just to give you some names, uh, who have uh, become prominent in writing about how to interpret the Islamic text within this reformist agenda. So people like Salman al-Uda, people like uh, Abdullah al-Hamid, and, and many others, uh, Suleiman al-Rushudi. And, and, and those people have dedicated a lot of time to write in a way that is accessible. So I would call some of them, with the exception probably of Salman al-Auda, as mufakkir Islami, as intellectuals rather than a scholastic 
people who had traditional training in the Islamic sciences. But the trend combines the ulama and Mufakkir al-Islami, the intellectuals who have uh, obviously Islamic training and, and knowledge, but they work in professions such as English, uh, Arabic literature or history or other fields that are not specifically uh, related to theology. So this trend had emerged in, in 2008 and it had been under pressure since then. In fact, I don't want to jump the stages, but let me give you a glimpse of the concepts they deal with. So uh, the, as they are working against a state Wahhab, uh, Wahhabia, the state Wahhabia, in terms of politics, the uh, official language of religion of Wahhabia insisted on certain concepts. One of them is the total obedience to Wali al-Amr, that is total obedience to the uh, rightful ruler of the Muslim community, whoever he is. And they, those uh, official scholastic religious interpretations have a history within Sunni Islam in terms of forbidding uh, a rebellion against the ruler. And it goes back to Ghazali, it goes back to Mawardi, etc., etc. And they insist that uh, whoever is the ruler must be obeyed. And there are conditions that justify the rebellion. And for them, rebellion is extended to include or encompass all sorts of actions and words. Uh, whereas the original Sunni rebellion was armed rebellion against the ruler because it creates fitna, chaos, discord within the Muslim community. Um, and uh, the reformers, I, I consulted uh, their work and books, they argue that this obedience is limiting because it justifies the rule by conquest, you know, that is, you know, if you land in a city and you conquer it, then you are the legitimate ruler and we have to obey you. And they challenge that uh, in their discourse. So mainly Abdullah al-Hamid has written over 20 books in order to discuss this. The other, so rebellion for the Saudi state and its ulama means that a tweet against the policies of the regime, or even in the 90s, a fax sent to a government bureaucracy criticizing the policies of the state. Uh, a poem can be rebellion in their, uh, in, in, in their rulings. And the Mufti of Saudi Arabia, Abdul Aziz al-Sheikh, epitomizes this position because, for example, Twitter was outlawed because it involves dissent and people are using it to criticize the king. So another concept is al-Ummah. Al-Ummah is the Muslim community, community of believers, etc. And it comes in different shades. So for, for the reformer, especially Abdullah al-Hamid, al-Ummah is wali al-Amr, which means that al-Ummah has as a body the capacity to rule itself through the, the election of its representative. And this is pretty revolutionary in Saudi Arabia because the Ummah in Saudi Arabia is only supposed to give the oath of allegiance when requested, the bay'ah. 
And so the people would come to offer the king al-bay'ah, the, the uh, oath of allegiance, and there are no elections or no representative of the ummah. The only representatives are the king, the appointed uh, majlis al-shura, which is the council, um, the consultative council that the king appoints its member. According to the official Wahhabiya, those are qualify as Ahl al-Hal wal-Aqad, people who have the notables, but the notables are actually appointed by the king. They have not emerged through a natural progression. Then there is the concept of hisba, uh, uh, which is the forbidding evil and commanding right. So they, they uh, as the Saudi government outlaws the uh, demonstration or civil resistance, civil disobedience, uh, from the perspective of the reformer, al-Hisbah is the community, the ummah, uh, being on guard to watch state and society relation. It is not simply a couple, uh, a fleet of mutawwa, of religious uh, vigilante who roam the streets in order to uh, discipline and punish transgression. It is to look at uh, how this relationship between state and society functions in an equitable way. And just finally, the concept of jihad, which is prominent and there are thousands of books have writ been written on it. Abdullah al-Hamid introduces something called civil jihad, al-jihad al-madani. So he argues that, uh, yes, of course, there is defensive jihad. When a Muslim country is invaded, it's incumbent on all Muslim able men to join. But there is another civil jihad, a madani jihad, that allows you to struggle for the betterment of your society and your governance. So this trend has faced in Saudi Arabia the violence of the jihadis because they saw it as a threat to their discourse. At the same time, the government, the, uh, the monarchy, had seen this as the ultimate challenge to its so-called Islamic State, uh, because it's a discourse that comes out of the Islamic tradition, try to fuse it with human and civil and political rights in order to create a better political system. And finally, there is the apathy of Saudis in general, who for centuries had been sort of uh, given up on, the re on religion uh, producing uh, liberation theology. The only sort of an in inverted comma liberation theology that existed was the violent path of the jihadis. And because of this, the turmoil that had happened since the 90, 1979, quite a lot of uh, Saudis had probably abandoned faith in any kind of emancipation within the religious tradition. So the reformers are improving prison since they were put on trial in 2009, and that went on until 2011. They were all sentenced to long prison sentences. And uh, unfortunately, Abdullah al-Hamid, one of the main ideologues, um, died in prison because of neglect. So what is the future? Are we going to see a revival or a continuation of this trend? 
I think the rise and demise of this reformist trend is not final, especially it's sort of the repression. Um, And we know that within the Islamic tradition, there is probably an innate ability to uh, rejuvenate discourse, to debate. There is no way that any Muslim community would accept that the gates of ijtihad, of reasoning, are closed. And because of that characteristic within Islam, we are going to see a revival. When and how, I don't know. However, and just a final warning, that when a repressive state like the Saudi state represses this uh, nascent reformist tradition, it actually creates a void in society, both intellectual, ideological, etc. And what we have seen recently is the new Uh, sort of shedding the Islamic tradition, pushing it away apart from the state-sanctioned one. And we are having a void at the moment in Saudi Arabia that can be filled again by the cycle of violence. So I'll stop here. And sorry, uh, Osama, for going on a bit. I apologize. I actually gave you an early warning than I was supposed to. So you have actually concluded exactly on time, and I very much appreciate that. And apologies if my sort of comments disturbed you at all. No, not at all. Thank you. A fascinating lecture. And I mean, reminiscent, it reminded me of your fantastic book, Muted Modernists, where you discuss this, you know, this constellation of scholars uh, and thinkers. And I I was also reminded of the uh, somewhat slightly tragic and poignant article that you had in the book on sectarianization with Hashmi and I forget, Postel where you basically talk about the difficulty in a place like Saudi Arabia of actually actualizing any change. But perhaps we can explore that further in the Q&A. So thank you so much for an eye-opening reflection that covered a number of your works. Now we'll shift to uh, Pascal Menoré, who is at Brandeis University. Um, he is the René uh, and Lester Crown Professor of Modern Middle Eastern Studies. So Pascal's teaching and interests include urban anthropology, infrastructure, protests, and ethnographic fieldwork. He's the author of four works, um, most recently uh, with Stanford University Press, Graveyards of Clerics, uh, Everyday Activism in Saudi Arabia. So very much in the same sort of space that we're thinking about um, for this seminar. Pascal has taught at Princeton, New York University, Abu Dhabi, and has conducted research at Harvard. And of course, most of your education uh, took place in France, but it it gives us great pleasure to um, welcome you to the session. Please take the floor. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks very much. Thanks, Usama and Faisal, for the for the very kind invitation. It's great to uh, it's great to be with you uh, today, and it's it's a very great pleasure to see and to listen to Madawi Rashid. Thank you very much for your uh, presentation. I'm really happy to be uh, to be here with you. So I'm going to start with a with a fieldwork uh, anecdote. Uh, when I was doing fieldwork in Riyadh in the late 2000s, I was on a French Foreign Office stipend. Uh, that was not a lot of money. Um, the French state was not very generous with with its PhD students. I was I was getting roughly you know 700 euros a month, but that was enough to actually make French intelligence officers think that they could invite me to work with them. And so one night, the second counselor of the of the French embassy invited me for dinner. And usually the second counselor is the intelligence guy, right, in French embassies. 
And that was a retired army general, and he had more than a veneer of culture. So the conversation was free-flowing and interesting. He dined and wined me. And then at the end of the dinner, his sidekick, a guy working with him, uh, insisted, insisted to, to drive me home. And he asked if I could keep tabs on French converts living in Riyadh. So I said no, but the story stuck with me, right? And basically, it leads me to my main question this morning, uh, this afternoon in the UK. The question is, what's the point of studying religious activism or political activism in Saudi Arabia? And that's a real question at a time when social science research is being used by states to, you know, direct or inform various forms of the, of the war on terror. Uh, and we're still living through the war on terror 20 years after its beginning. So I worked on mostly on Islamic activism as a PhD student, but when I came to the U.S. Uh, as a postdoc, I, I was very ill at ease with the idea that I would work, um, that I would write a book that, would, that might basically, you know, help uh, inform the war on terror. So I, I wrote my first post-PhD book on joyriding, joyriding in Riyadh. And it was partly to eschew the kind of university to intelligence uh, pipeline that, that you see uh, in France, in the US, and I'm sure in the UK as well. And then a couple of years ago, I published Graveyard of Clerics almost reluctantly. I made it as ethnographic as possible. And as I would say, politically toothless as possible, not in a bad way, but, but you know, in order not, not to, to be informing that kind of, you know, kind of, of global war. And so the book came out during the pandemic <laughs> with a title that was not very inviting. Uh, you know, who wants to buy a book called Graveyard during, um, you know, COVID-19? So the book is kind of a dud, which is exactly what I hoped for. But basically what, what I want to do um, is, is to in response to that question, why studying Islamic movements in Saudi Arabia? I want to I draw you know, a broad landscape of, of three types of study of Islamic movements, three styles of studying Islamic movements in Saudi Arabia. The first style is basically what I would call the war on terror scholarship. And it's, it's a style of studying Islamic movements in Saudi Arabia that portrays them as anti-liberal and therefore the enemy, right? And I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to be very brief about this because it's pretty well known. Um, you know, you, you have scholars such as Gilles Kepel in France, uh, Joshua Teitelbaum in Israel. In some ways, uh, Egghammer in in uh, in um, in Norway have been examples of of this trend, right? I mean, and, and the the idea here is to study the most egregiously violent um, Islamic activists and to foreground uh, the study of texts and political theology and to turn that scholarship into an instrument of, of war. Uh, this is pretty mainstream and I don't need to spend much time uh, discussing it. The second style of, of studying Islamic movements and reform movements in Saudi Arabia has been what I would call the democratization scholarship. And basically its main tenet is that Islamic movements in, in Saudi Arabia represent a step on the road towards political reform and democratization, despite their sometimes anti-liberal leanings. And so um, the idea here is, that to, is, is to say that through Islamic activism, larger shares of the population have gotten access to the public space, and in particular to political spaces, right, including the political sphere. So, you know, I mean, this in this trend, you find the, uh, well, you know, uh, Stéphane Lacroix's uh, Islamo-liberalism thesis, right, in his, his emphasis on, on some of the reformers that Madawi Rashid is studying and on their liberalism, right? But you also find some of my work, I mean, belongs definitely to that, uh, to that democratization or that almost transitologist thesis. 
um, you know, I, mean, I worked a bit on the, uh, the 2005 municipal elections in Saudi Arabia, and I analyzed the connections between Islamic activities, Islamic everyday activities in, uh, in schools, in local mosques, and as, as, a, as a resource, as a political resource to um, organize and guide electoral participation. And in particular, I was fascinated by the way electoral campaigns were modeled after summer camp events that had been uh, you know, organized by Islamic activists for, for a very long period of time. So that, that, that connection was very strong. The third type of scholarship is what I would call post-colonial scholarship. And here, you know, you could call it the Talal Assad school uh, in, in some sort of way. And it basically says that position one and position two, so the, you know, the jihadologists and then the, the transitologists are basically still Eurocentric, right? They take Western liberalism as their point of reference. And I think here Madawi's work really belongs, I mean, in some of Madawi's work belongs to, to, that, uh, to that third orientation. And I'm also trying to work more toward that, that third orientation myself in my work. So basically, it is to say that uh, jihadologists and, and transitologists are still taking Western liberalism as their point of reference. And here the idea is to read Saudi activism, Saudi Islamic reformism in its own terms, right? And it's realizing that like the jihadologists, uh, most reformers in Saudi Arabia are not liberal. And here I, I totally agree with, with the way Madawi just presented uh, their thought. And, but like the transitologists, it's, it's also um, uh, in a way, it's a way to, saying that, to say that it's not because they're not liberal that, they're, that this is necessarily a bad thing for political perspectives and for the political future of Saudi Arabia. And here, you know, the reference to Talal Assad comes with that, that short piece that he wrote, um, I think, back in the, in the early 1990s, and it's called The Limits of Religious Criticism in the Middle East. It's a fascinating piece, it's a 30, 40 pages uh, piece, which is based on a comparison between Immanuel Kant and uh, Saeed bin Zayir, who is one of the, of the pioneers of Islamic reformism in, in Saudi Arabia, and also one of the, uh, one of the veterans of political prisons in the, in the country. He's been imprisoned for the longest period of time. And here, uh, what Talal Assad does is that he, he takes, basically he sums up political liberalism, according to Kant, as follows, right? Argue as much as you like, but obey, right? So you have a conjunction of free speech and punctual obedience. And so the liberalism is based on the refusal of direct action, right? Enlightenment led to strengthening Western states and to, uh, I mean, we, we also know that enlightenment is, is connected with colonialism and with systemic racism in a very narrow manner. And also that enlightenment was better in some sort of way better than absolutism at making state authority convincing, right? So here, what Said bin Zayyar is doing in his, in his work and in his uh, spoken word, because here Talal Assad relies on the sermon, on the, uh, on the taped sermon given by, by Said bin Zayyar, I believe at the end of the 1980s. Basically, Said bin Zayyar is saying, well, according to the Enlightenment, there is a right to criticize the ruler and a duty to obey. According to us, there is a duty to criticize and maybe also a duty to not obey in certain circumstances. So criticism is a duty, it's not optional. And you know, this goes back to the hadith, if you see evil, you know, change it by your hand, if you can't change it by your tongue, if you can't change it by uh, your heart, right? And, and, and so Islamic action here 
to, I mean, and this is where I connect my, my work to the work of, of Tal al-Assad, Islamic action is direct action, right? And um, so Tal al-Assad analyzes Nasiha in his, in his work. And basically, I mean, there, there are a lot of implications to his analysis of Said bin Zayir's positions. Uh, Nasiha, uh, i.e., you know, the, the, the duty to advise the ruler in um, matters of public affairs. And there are two conditions, according to Tal al-Assad, uh, to performing Nasiha. The first one is to be knowledgeable. Uh, and the second one is to be kind, right? <laughs> but kindness and, and knowledge are, are basically the preconditions to accessing the, the public sphere. So... I mean, this this opens this post-colonial uh, direction opens a, a lot of um, really exciting prospects uh, and really exciting theoretical avenues and perspectives. You know, there are a few pages about the, the notion of slavery to God as a model of political persona and a model of political style. And here, you know, I mean, you, you could reconnect also uh, some of Saba Mahmoud's uh, work to to that to that direction of of thought. The slavery to God as a, as a political model here is definitely opposed to mastery, which is the liberal uh, ideal of uh, political agency, uh, autonomy, right? So in, in my own work, and this is, this is my fourth point, if, if you will, what, what I've been doing in my, in my fieldwork is that I've been looking, um, because of the difficulties of conducting uh, ethnographic fieldwork and political activism in the conditions that Matawiya Rashid just summed up for us, I've been looking at politics through the prism of urban uh, change and urbanism. And, and basically, I've been looking at the urban fabric as a, as a gate toward understanding the political sphere. And in particular, I've been looking at the movements from informal uh, urbanism to formal, formal urbanism as a movement of destruction, as, as everybody who's looked at, into uh, urban renewal operations in the UK or in the US knows. And I've been looking also at suburbanization as the making of you know, what Michel Foucault would call a disciplinary space, a space that has been ordered and organized and in which each individual basically is put in their own small corner and asks to be predictable and to engage only in certain types of very limited activities. So my main question has been, how do you subvert a disciplinary space? How do you deprogram the infrastructure, right? And so in Joyriding in Riyadh, I've been looking at, um, you know, uh, Joyriders and Mufahatun as uh, those people who use speed as the main way to deprogram the infrastructure of roads and cars. In Graveyard of Clerics, I've been looking at everyday religious activism as a way to politicize suburban spaces, as a way to use suburban institutions, the mosque, the school, the summer camp, and the commute itself, right, as the one central suburban institution, right, the invisible institution of the time you spend in your car. So basically, they've been using these suburban institutions as spaces of organizing and activism. So I, I could give you, you know, I, I can give you a few examples. Commute time could be empty time, right? It could be the very image of the individualization of society, of its atomization at the hands of the state and of, you know, of the corporate state as well. But for Islamic activists, this time is not lost time. It's actually time regained. It's made plain and full by using the car as a political vector. So in Saudi Arabia, the car, the sayara, becomes the, the smallest unit of the Islamic movement. And that unit is called al-Usra, you know, in, in, in the Egyptian Muslim Brotherhood, for instance, the family. Uh, in Saudi Arabia, in, in, in the Saudi Muslim Brotherhood, in Saudi Sahwa movements, the Islamic awakening movements, 
there is that notion that to make an osra, you need several sayarats to actually bring people toward that place. And that the suburban space and the commute time it, it themselves are political resources. Same goes with school breaks, right? At school, these are not empty times, but there are, there are periods of time to be used and invested political capital in waiting. Or summertime, same thing with the summer camps organized by, by Islamic activists since the 1970s. Not empty time, but time regained, time politicized. Here, you know, basically, summer times are those spaces where you learn all kinds of, of, of political uh, organizational moves and tactics that are recuperable in the public sphere once the conditions become ripe for, for collective action. So basically, Saudi Islamic activists, and that, that's the crux of, of what I've been doing in, in Graveyard of Clerics, I've been re, you know, reawakening the graveyard, right? I mean, as Sahwa, as Sahwa, as, as you know, the political, wake, the, the Islamic awakening movement happens within the Graveyard of Clerics, right? Maqbarat al-Ulama. And the Graveyard of Clerics is what exactly what, what Madawi has been describing with, uh, you know, Wahhabism is the Graveyard of Clerics, right? It's, it's that notion that clerics are put under a lid and that they're forbidden from engaging in basic public activities. And maybe I'll take a, I'll take a minute to answer my, the, the question I was asking in the beginning, if, if I still have one or two minutes. But what's the point of studying Islamic activism? It's only now, a year after uh, starting this project, that I, I start to see the meaning of all this. And here I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kind of zoom out and, and change the perspective a bit. I believe that Saudi political uh, and religious activists bring some responses to a very pressing question. And the question is, how can we imagine life in the ruins of petrocapitalism and of racial capitalism, in the ruins created by the domination of oil over the Saudi environment? the Saudi political environment, the Saudi natural environment, in the ruins created, for instance, by Saudi bulldozers in Riyadh and Jeddah. I mean, parts of Jeddah are being demolished as we speak, following the logics of urban renewal that I've analyzed in some of my work, or in the ruins created by the Saudi army in Yemen, right? Um, same dynamics, the politics of the void, right? So the global economic system is based on the fiction of infinite growth, which is itself predicated on the fiction of a cheap supply of fossil fuels, and so looking at the Anthropocene and looking at Saudi Arabia is actually, it's actually very easy to be totally pessimistic, right? And to read in oil the collapse of ecosystems and of the global financial systems. And so the, the angle I'm, I'm looking at Saudi activism from is basically to say that the fossil apocalypse, apocalypse is not a future event, right? It's already happened in Saudi Arabia. How did Saudis survive it? What can we learn from Saudi activists? There are too many accounts of Anthropocene as impending death. And basically what I propose is to look at uh, instead how people already living through the apocalypse are organizing within the ruins, right? And so that's, you know, I've, I've, I'm starting to think about the notion of the petro-optimist, you know, the petrol optimist, and it's based on Emil Habibi's, uh, you know, it's a pun on Emil Habibi's uh, very famous pessimist um, uh, figure. So I'm, I'm looking at Islamic activists in Saudi Arabia as petro-optimists. They live through the political and economic apocalypse and found ways to organize in its ruins. Thank you very much. Great. Thank you very much for both really fascinating talks. So again, to the audience, do uh, you know, type in your questions in the Q&A or the, or the chat box. And I have a couple, but I know Osama has one as well. Do you want to begin, Osama? I'd be happy to. I've got 
a lot of questions for for you know two outstanding scholars on Saudi Arabia and I actually lived in Saudi Arabia for a period as well so uh, I have an abiding interest in Saudi Arabia. I, perhaps I can ask something which has um, sort of straddles both of your talks to a certain extent this discourse on rebellion and the notion of obedience. So uh, you've both basically said that this can be anchored within the Islamic tradition and is, you know, weaponized in different ways by different actors. The states want to, uh, you know, emphasize the absolute necessity for obedience. And people like Abdullah al-Hamid uh, or other activists will point out, no, actually, Islam legitimates um, sort of uh, activism and amr bil-ma'ruf and nahi al-munkar. And I just wanted to ask uh, both of you if you thought that there had settled a particular position or is it constant contestation and if you're willing to perhaps prognosticate in the direction of travel for the ideas about obedience versus Amr bin Maruf and Nahyan Mulka as a point of contest. Thank you, Osama. And uh, thank you, Pascal, for a very, very inspiring presentation that sums the study of Islamic or Islamist movement from the time it started. But just to respond, as you were talking uh, about how you came to study Saudi Arabia and the, the Islamic activism, I, I think I have a different story because for me, it's very personal. As I grew up in Saudi Arabia, I was introduced and indoctrinated in the uh, official religious curriculum. So for me, it's not only about democracy, about jihad, about hisbah, about the war on terror. It's about little fatwas that I, I remember and I was supposed to abide by. So for example, I mean, it moves to the absurd. As a young person living in Saudi Arabia, you are told how to comb your hair as a woman. So we can't comb it on the side or have a parting on the side. And this is a fatwa in uh, the uh, big manuals, if you like, that if you part your hair on, on the side, it is called tashabbuh bil kuffar. We're imitating the infidels. And it goes down to the minute uh, details of your life. So I was fascinated by this. And obviously, as a child, you don't you, uh, you know, think about it. But as I uh, grew up, I wanted to explore the meaning of this and what it does to disciplining the body, disciplining your mind, and also instigating uh, obedience and mitigating against rebellion. So it is actually, it starts at the level of disciplining the body. And that is the official uh, religious curriculum. And then there is, uh, as you grow up, you are introduced to Ta'at Wali Al-Amr. In school, every morning, but also on television, when television started in the 60s, and now you get, uh, you get it in mosque sermons, you, you get it everywhere. You get it in tweets as well as the mufti would would tweet used to tweet and uh, many others so basically yes between rebellion and obedience there is a spectrum uh, of activities that people could do uh, i mean uh, pascal focuses on these uh, these rebellions that if you're looking at a grand revolutionary scenario they are not but there are ways for people to break the constraint of the heavy going discourse of obedience. 
and uh, sanctions against digression. You can't. And, and, and therefore, the rebellion, as the Islamic classical scholars uh, theorized it within the Sunni tradition, there are different views. But, but the Saudi uh, position now builds on the Wahhabi position, which itself started as a rebellion. So, so basically, these are cycles. In, in the uh, 18th century, Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab called for jihad uh, to establish the Islamic State and called for a rebellion against the Ottoman uh, Sultan in Istanbul because the Ottoman state was described as Dawla al-Kafira, al-Mubtadi'a, which means the, the infidel state that uh, has innovations, mainly because they were Sufis or encouraged Sufism in the Ottoman Empire. So the, the original rebellion of Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab was armed rebellion. It was called a jihad against the unbelievers. And the unbelievers were not the Christians and Jews, as many people would tell you. They are other Muslims, and they are not even the Shia. They are Sunni Muslims. That's the beginning of the Saudi jihad against Sunni Muslims in the Hijaz, in the other villages, oasis. So the act of rebellion of uh, 18th century was justified, but then once the rightful Muslim leader got established, the Al Saud, then rebellion has to be outlawed. Uh, and then rebellion, uh, only in the Wahhabi tradition, we see that this word uh, rebellion is overstretched to include peaceful action. A peaceful uh, giving your opinion, civil disobedience. So, uh, for example, demonstrations are banned in Saudi Arabia, but people like Abdullah al-Hamid use the concept of rahat, group of people. So, uh, and he gives examples from the Islamic tradition. So if you have something to say to your ruler or leader, you don't go on your own because you are mustadaf, you are uh, weak. You bring a lot of people and you all go together because there is strength in numbers. And, and this he calls a rahat is actually a demonstration <laughs> in, in modern day. So there is quite a lot of fusion uh, with the old Islamic traditions that relate to obedience and rebellion and modern terminology. Uh, but that doesn't justify calling them the Islamic uh, liberals or the you know using these kind of words. As Pascal said, we have to understand them within their own context and within their own terminology. Thank you very much, uh, Madawi. Um, Pascal, I I had the same sort of question for you, but I don't know if you would like to add to that. I think uh, I mean I think we we should uh, move on to to more questions. Okay, that's fine. So to, to the audience, uh, do you know either raise your hand or write your question? We have one. I have a couple um, for both uh, Madawi and Pascal. But let me begin with you, Pascal. Uh, which is you know this uh, what you say cite from um, Talal Assad. You know it's fascinating because if one were to put the argument in another way, uh, it would be anti-liberal insofar as this is vision of criticism or what you want to call it, that's not based on rights, but on duties, uh, that your absolute duty to criticize rather than simply the freedom to criticize. And as you were speaking, I was reminded of, you know, some of the work I'm doing on Gandhi, where 
obviously very different kind of context and thought, but nevertheless there too, you have a kind of deliberate critique of rights language and linked to freedoms uh, that you know you have the freedom to do something, but you don't have to do it, and a resort to the language of duty, uh, where you are actually impelled to do something. You must do something, and that's what makes it a moral act, as opposed to simply being free to do something. And I was just wondering whether it's clearly non-liberal in that sense, but whether you know there's any engagement at all with the opposite. You know, and this goes to Madawi as well. You know, I entirely agree with you that we shouldn't simply loosely call people liberals for this and other reasons. But it struck me that the departure that you, uh, that the intellectuals you're looking at represent is actually quite startling because if you go even to the 19th century and sort of Muslim reformists of the 19th century, you know, they're constantly engaging with liberal and other European categories, notions, ideas, narratives. And here you seem not to see that at all. So it's actually detached even from this earlier Muslim reformist tradition, as far as I can tell. And I just wondered whether, surely it must be a deliberate choice. There must know some of this tradition, reformist and liberal. And you know, why do you think that is and what's going on? You know, is it a direct invocation of or derivation from the kind of Wahhabi vision that they uh, come out of and against which they speak, is that they, there seems to have been a decision not to actually draw upon this by now vast corpus of reformist themes and narratives and terms and categories, which would actually make these figures much more easily understood, not just by the West, but by other kinds of Muslim movements. So it's the, the deliberation of that refusal that I find fascinating. And for Pascal, again, just the, you know, if there's anything that could be said about the explicitly anti-liberal nature, not just that they don't happen to be liberals, but they actually have an argument against it insofar as, you know, there's a critique of the idea of rights and freedoms and a much more, since you mentioned Foucault, Foucauldian type idea of you know, when he writes about Parhesia and the, the duty to dissent, even if it is at some risk to yourself. And that you see is true of figures like Gandhi as well. So there's an alternative tradition, which is clearly in some ways egalitarian and clearly rebellious, but it doesn't go down the liberal road. Sorry for a rather mixed up, but uh, question to, to you both. Well, I think, Faisal, you put your uh, finger on a very, very important point. Um, first of all, you know, the context of Muhammad Abdo and the others is different. They were trying, in my view and in the view of many of the Saudi reformers, to make Islam palatable. Also, they were palatable to a West that was aggressive, that was occupying Muhammad Abdo and the British, you know. And so instead of saying, yes, we are going to be all liberal like you, we have some kind of Islam that can be adapted to your liberalism. This context of Saudi Arabia in the 20, late 20th century is completely different. So basically, uh, yes, uh, all the reformers are aware of Muhammad Abdo, of, of the others, of uh, you know, Afghani and, and all of them. 
but they, it's a completely different context. We have a Wahhabi state uh, in Saudi Arabia, and they, like me, they were indoctrinated in the tradition of the Wahhabis. And in fact, they mastered, you know, their language, the discourse, but they were able to emerge out of that tradition rather than an attempt to please some kind of colonial power and say, and also for Muhammad Abdu and the others, the, the biggest question is the colonialism, the, uh, of, uh, the occupation of Muslim land and the introvert uh, uh, sort of looking inside your tradition to say, why, what happened to us? What, how have we failed? Why are we in this situ situation? In Saudi Arabia, it's a completely different context. Like a hundred years later, you know, you have the power of an Islamic tradition called the Wahhabi tradition, whether it's Salafi or not, sitting and, and perpetuating injustices. So in terms of the duty, yes, uh, I mean, I, I wouldn't even go as far as, for example, calling them the post-Islamism of, for example, Asif Bayat that he observed in uh, Iran among the reformers there. I don't think it's a time, it's a discursive tradition that can go in cycles. And it's not like, oh, now we're finished with Islamism, we're moving to post-Islamism because those people are talking about rights rather than duties, you know, duty of to obey. But I, I think uh, it, it is an intellectual mutation that is local. And that's the difference between them and reformers, such as the one that emerged towards the 19th century, end of the 19th century in places like Egypt, Syria, and India, and, and, and Indonesia, and everywhere. That might mean, uh, if I might just interject here, Badawi, that you're right, of course, that these are not figures who are arguing against colonialism. And, but in a way, what their emergence then tells us is that the post-colonial moment in, or the way of thinking about you know, what Pascal was describing of Islamic reformists or whatever you want to call them in colonial or post-colonial terms simply doesn't apply here. You know, this is not an issue. And it's, I find that a quite important suggestion that even though in the Western Academy, we are inundated with talk about empire and colonialism and either post or decolonial stuff. In fact, it might be the case that the figure of the colonial is just not part of these debates at all, even in some extenuated way, you know, like American empire or yes. something like that. And that actually is quite, uh, it's a kind of fascinating, uh, it's more interesting than the Asif Bayat model of post everything. Yeah. Post, you know, post-Islamist as opposed to, you know, in comparison to post-colonial or post-modern or post whatever it is. Well, I mean, as you said, there is an awareness of global uh, power and inequality and also domination in the writings of Abdullah Hamid and the others. But the focus is really on, they are arguing against a hegemonic Wahhabi tradition that had deprived people of their rights and in, inscribed certain duties that they object to, basically. But yes, it's it would be an interesting case because, you know, 
I mean, it, it, when we talk about colonialism in the context of Saudi Arabia, it's different from, you know, the direct colonialism. We don't want to go into that. But I mean, the domination, the hegemony, American hegemony in Saudi Arabia, that that is, a, you know, a felt reality. They can't escape it, those reformers. Can I interject uh, on, on this sort of Saudi, in a sense, different a set of circumstances that you're thinking about when it comes to the colonial condition. So, I mean, it, it's true that Saudi Arabia obviously hasn't experienced colonialism in the way that many states, Egypt or you know South Asian states have, but it, it's kind of experienced something almost the opposite where the Wahhabi um, sort of regime, which is uh, thoroughly Islamic of a kind of Islam, obviously it's not sort of, uh, I'm not suggesting that there's one kind of Islam and it's Wahhabi Islam, but that was actually propped up by US power and those intimate relations based on the fact that there was so much oil there. So there is a kind of a liberal underlining or a liberal underwriting, you could say, of the Wahhabi project in an ironic sense, which, uh, you know, I, I think about sometimes when we think about sort of a post-liberal space, uh, liberalism, as Uday Mehta and others have observed, is intimately integrated into empire building as well, right? Historically speaking, and scholars talk about the liberal colonial state. And this is just a subtle alternate form of colonial domination potentially, where the Wahhabi state, uh, which is the proximate interlocutor for these activists, it may be seen as an extension of a liberal project potentially, but for these people that, you know, secondary sort of like uh, hegemon is not the proximate cause of their suffering in a sense. So that's why, I, I don't know if that's a useful way of framing this situation. Well, I mean, you're right. Uh, the Wahhabi tradition is actually became very useful to uh, the so-called liberal state, uh, the United States, Britain. I mean, it was, uh, uh, but you know, the interesting thing is, is the militant part of the Wahhabi tradition that was, uh, that endeared itself in the Cold War as a force among Muslims to fight other social and political movements. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that is from, from the 1960s. It was, a, but it wasn't only the Wahhabi tradition. We see also like evangelical Protestant groups who benefited from that Cold War period. And they were seen as a countercurrent to, for example, you know, leftists, etc., nationalists. Yeah. Uh, so it wasn't, it was a, a, the, you know, weaponization of religion in, during the Cold War that made the Wahhabi extremely useful for a colonial or imperial, whatever you want to call it, project. But yes, I don't know how Pascal perhaps has a, a take on this. Yes, uh, you know, I, I'm reminded of some of your work, uh, Madawi, on, on the separation of religion and state in Saudi Arabia. And I was going to say, you know, Wahhabism in a way is, is co-terminus to liberalism in the sense that it uh, lends itself to that sort of separation, right, and and uh, and to the division of labor between uh, between the princes and 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 those ulama who have uh, subjected themselves to the to the palace, and uh, we've 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 seen that uh, you know that that separation like taking different shades since like roughly the 1950s, and you know at, at the time when uh, Mohammed bin Ibrahim was was uh, was Grand Mufti of Saudi Arabia, so until like 1969, it definitely took a different. Kind of coloration than after uh, Mohammed bin Ibrahim's death, 
you know, during Mohammed bin Ibrahim's time, it was more like a separation, a strict separation. And then after that, it became more a subjugation of, of the religious sphere to the, to the political sphere. And then I would say, you know, after the, um, the Gulf War in 1990, it became a, a kind of a more direct repression, right? I mean, the, the, the religious sphere became under attack in, in several, several very direct ways. So in that sense, Wahhabism to me is, is I'm, I'm, not gonna, I'm not saying it's a form of liberalism. I'm saying it's coterminous to liberalism. It, it lends itself to, to the kind of division of labor and of roles that liberalism entails. But you know, to, come, to come back to, um, to Faisal's question about uh, rights and duty, I think that that's, in, from my perspective, as, as an outsider, as somebody who came to Saudi Arabia by chance, right? So I, 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 and, and who, who, who was uh, absolutely uh, willing to, I mean, I, I had been studying Arabic for a very long time. I come from Marseille, which is a, growing up was a bilingual city, is still in many ways a, a bilingual city. And, and I, I really wanted to speak the other language and to understand the other language of the city. So, I, you know, I come from that, from that deep uh, curiosity and commitment to be involved in, in all things uh, Arab and Islamic. But I came to Saudi Arabia by chance, right? It could have been elsewhere. But what, what I take away from, from my study of Islamic activism in Saudi Arabia is really a, a, a set of very radical and very interesting, very intriguing ideas. I mean, the, the notion that that there would be a duty to engage in political affairs is something that is absolutely radical, right? Um, radical because of its implications for everyday life. I mean, if we think of what would the duty to vote mean in such a place as the United States, for instance, I mean, that would be a sea change, right, in, in, in politics. Uh, of course, the United States, especially right now, is, is, is deeply involved in doing the opposite, right, and restricting the right to vote. But it's also, uh, it's also radical theoretically, right, not only in everyday politics, this idea that basically it entails the idea that autonomy is no longer the crux of political self-definition, right, or self-fashioning. It's heteronomy, right? You take your orders from somewhere else, right? So you, you no longer base your persona, your political persona on that notion of self-mastery, right? Which is definitely, I mean, since the, the age of the Enlightenment, based on the idea that you're a master, not a slave, right? So it's based on the on basically the deep the deep connection between the Enlightenment and slavery as a global institution, uh, and in that sense, liberalism is absolutely problematic, right? Uh, so that that you know the notion of the heteronomy should be at the crux of of political life is is absolutely fascinating. Does it mean that we are dealing with a reactionary thought? I don't think so. And that's that's another part of that's another facet of that fascination I have for these movements and for their theories. Basically, what comes first for Islamic activists in Saudi Arabia is never the state, right? And that's that's that in that sense, it's not conservatism or reactionary you know, action. What comes first is the inviolability of the body, it's the sacredness of this private sphere. And the state comes second after that, right? I mean, the enlightenment. Again, was was a way. I mean, Tocqueville has has, has very you know uh, convincing pages about that. The Enlightenment was a way to make the absolute state <laughs> even more absolute than it was before the French Revolution, right? Because what's more absolute than the idea that you yourself, as a as a self-mastering individual, are actually participating in your in the making of the state, right? So, in that sense, Islamic activists in Saudi Arabia come from a very different uh, ground. I mean, there are, yeah, there are many other topics. The notion of the post-colonial, I, mean, I, I might have a, a slightly different perspective on, on, on this. 
you know that that I mean again, and I, I could quote uh, I could quote you, Madawi, uh, in in your work, right? I mean, you 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 basically in in your history of Saudi Arabia. I mean, back in in you know in two thousand two was it uh, or two thousand one? You 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 criticized that idea that that notion that Saudi Arabia hasn't been colonized, right? I mean, uh, there has been a, a, a British protectorate in in nineteen fifteen. In that sense, you know, I mean, it's it's not that much different from what was going on around the, the Gulf at the same period of time. It's 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 a matter of length of time. But but the the operations uh, are, are very similar, and then the 1933 oil concessions are, are absolutely key in the making of of contemporary Saudi Arabia, right? And 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 so and and this this is some of what I've been working on very 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 closely on the the, the unmaking and remaking of Saudi society, of Saudi Saudi urban spaces, and of Saudi spaces themselves through through U.S. presence and influence is uh, is absolutely key. And here. My, my, my slight difference is that I look at everyday politics, so I look at those activists who are inspired by, I would say, mainstream Sahwa discourse, and not necessarily the most reformist among them. And I would say, you know, mainstream Sahwa is very much preoccupied with the idea of the post-colonial. And it's very much preoccupied with the, the notion that Saudi Arabia is a quasi-colony of the United States and it needs to be liberated, right? I mean, when you read or listen to, uh, you know, Salman al-Ada in the 1990s, Safar al-Hawali in the 1990s, Nasser Omar, even, even very recently, Mohammed al-Hudayf, I mean, these, these you know, ulama or activists are all committed to the notion, to, the, to a notion of, of decolonial um, activism as well. Oh, thanks, uh, Pascal. We have two questions, but I just want to, both from Madawi, but before I read them, I just want to say that um, on the question of colonialism, of course, even where it happens, and it happens most places, directly or indirectly, you know, it's a question of at what point does the category cease to be analytically and politically viable? You know, I've been looking recently at, you know, the, found, the emergence of Bangladesh in 1971, in, in my view, it, you know, if 1947 is the beginning of a post-colonial state with India and Pakistan, the first two decolonized countries, 1971 with Bangladesh, you have the end of the post-colonial moment. All the states have that were once colonial have formally at least become independent. But Bangladesh is a new kind of emergence because it emerges against the post-colonial state, not against it. It's not a, you know, its enemy is not the colonial state. And to this day, when you look at its national narratives, it's and nothing to do with colonialism, even though, of course, it's a product of colonialism. You know, it has come about by destroying the post-colonial state. And that's what I find interesting that, you know, in that kind of situation, you know, you, you seem to have the beginning of a new logic, political logic, uh, coming not out of uh, anti-colonial movements and uh, independence, but out of civil war, civil war fomented within the post-colonial state itself and clearly the links back to empire are evident i mean i mean who's to argue against them but at a certain point that the term and the idea cease to be viable and i find that quite interesting you know how and why that happens and where it happens obviously doesn't happen everywhere but you know that was the uh, thing and i also agree with you know the the idea that you move from a situation of slavery, as it were, uh, you know, you're compelled to do something where slavery becomes a site of, if you will, freedom, because you have a duty to resist. In both cases, you're obeying. In one case, you're obeying in the way that uh, Madawi was describing it. You have to obey the king or, you're, you know, I mean, you're, it's drilled into you. 
in the other case, you're still obeying, but you're obeying something else, yourself or um, God or, you know, whatever. So it's, it's interesting that there's, you still have the language of obedience that structures both these forms, but very differently conceived. But let me go to the to the just question. just a little comment, um, yeah. Pascal. You know, it's it, it, obviously colonialism comes in different shapes, but you know, in, in the Sahwa movement, as much as the nationalist or the leftist movement in Saudi Arabia from the 1950s, I mean, there was a, a, an awareness, a strong awareness of the subservience or the domination of Saudi Arabia by the United by Britain first and the United States later. And for example, you know, if you look at the work of a Kuwaiti now, Hakim Lumtiri, he calls them Dawla al-Wadifiya, like uh, the states, the Gulf states as states to perform a certain function uh, in the service of bigger powers. So, I mean, 1990, the biggest crisis was the invitation of the US uh, troops to Saudi Arabia to defend to defend the country against the possible invasion by Saddam Hussein. So th that is the, the critical moment. But, uh, you know, to think that uh, in response to Faisal's comment about, you know, Muhammad Abdo and the, the modern, the reformist Within within the Muslim Arab Muslim world, I don't see the reformers in Saudi Arabia arguing or wanting to make Islam palatable to a Western power that is occupying them if, with troops on the ground. I think that's that's what I meant. But the awareness of the subservience. I mean, with Jihayman Latebi, you know, uh, even the one who uh, um, uh, occupied the mosque in 1979, uh, the, the first thing is that the Saudi king breached one sacred, uh, you know, injunction, and that is his subservience to the West. So th there is an awareness, but I mean, to invoke these post-colonial or post-Islamist, this is very problematic. I think, you know, we, we probably need another hour to discuss uh, their applicability across countries. Faisal, uh, do you mind if I interject briefly and, and just ask, um, I understand we have a couple of questions in the Q&A. This is kind of more for Pascal, but uh, it, it echoes what you're saying, Madawi, as well. I mean, I very much agree with both of you that, in a sense, you know, using the uh, the liberal lens as a kind of mayar, as a as a yardstick for assessing the quality of a certain idea. I mean, I'm reminded uh, of Albert Hurani's uh, book, a very important book, obviously, um, for his time. But in a sense, talking about oh, these thinkers, they're kind of second-rate thinkers. They're not really, you know, the very best. Um, but because he's assessing them against kind of the liberal tradition, which he sees as um, sort of mature, but that maturity is part of the colonial sort of like context, naturally. And I think in, in some respects, uh, both of you seem to be invested in a kind of, I, I mean, you've described it as post-colonial, some of you have used decolonial sometimes that. I like uh, Ramon uh, Grossfogel uh, at Berkeley ha talks about the fact that, look, you know, um, these all of these decolonial discourses that he's he himself is so invested in, he considers them to be completely independent of the sort of like the post-colonial ideas of people like Foucault. Or, or, I mean, they've been derived from Foucault or by Said or by others. And in a sense, uh, I think there's an importance to giving value to these thinkers in their own contexts, recognizing that they are inevitably going to be reacting to global hegemonic forces, but they 
you know, deserve the same kind of respect that we would give a Rawls or a Kant or a whatever in, in that sort of context. And I think that that's very worthwhile uh, as an enterprise, personally, for what it's worth. Well, I mean, one thing, uh, just a, a quick note, uh, you know, uh, Evans Pritchard from Oxford, when he went to study the newer and uh, newer religion, he came across something or somebody or a figure or a spirit called Kuth. And he was struggling uh, to translate it to a Western audience. So he called it the newer God. Although the, the idea, the concept of a God for the newer in the Southern Sudan doesn't exist, but this is the problem of translation. This doesn't mean that we rule out any kind of uh, engagement with world universal concepts. There might be, but to think that we could come across uh, something in the Islamic tradition and label it for a political reason. As Pascal told us, you know, there's the jihadology uh, uh, industry, then there is the sort of transitional advocates like, oh, well, if we want to see democracy in the Arab world, we really need to promote those or support those liberal Islamists. And, and this is a political project for a Western audience. It's not possibly the main concern of the reformists I talked about. They, they're not trying to make themselves you know, liked or appreciated by a Western audience. Although Muhammad, Ali, Muhammad Abdu did and was forced to do that because of the crisis of, uh, of Egypt, of the Muslim world. And then he was dealing with a British administration on the ground changing the law of Sharia, et cetera, et cetera, introducing constitution. All these kind of things are not there in Saudi Arabia, although now they are you know, beginning to manifest themselves. Thank you. Uh, yeah, thanks. Yeah, it almost seems uh, as, as if the, it's the Saudi state that has actually turned back to the 19th century in its attempts to... Well, yeah. yes. Well, especially, I mean, Mike, a good a question to Pascal, how does he see the, the changes that had ha taken place um, in the last six or seven years affecting the activism of the Islamist movement? Because, you know, you're very close in understanding and engaging with them. And, and, and I remember reading your book and I got to the last chapter and I was thinking, Oh, so what's happening now? <laughs> so maybe now is the time to tell us. Well, I mean, what's happening now is not is not very. These are not happy times, right? I think. I mean, there are there are many things to say about about the post um, 2015-2016 moment. One of them is that Mohammed bin Salman is definitely taking some of his lessons from an Islamic book. And that book is the book of the Muslim brothers using leisure as a way to organize youth, right? And so by foregrounding leisure as, a, as one of the, uh, you know, I mean, leisure has, has been a political object in Saudi Arabia since the 1970s. You know, I mean, there was a general presidency for, what, what was it? Riyasat al-Ammali. Madawi, you, you remember that? Um, for fun? <laughs> yeah, for fun, but it, it, was, it wasn't called fun. It was... Uh, yes. Anyway, I, it's, it's going to come back. It's the general presidency of youth, I think. That, that's the... For the, um, for the um, 
I was going to say the domestication of youth, <laughs> for the care uh, toward youth, right? So that, that dates back in the 1970s, but it was just a, um, you know, a general presidency lost in the administration. Mohammed bin Salman has made leisure and fun uh, one of his, one of the, the, the headers of his agenda, and that, that speaks to, um, in some sort of way, he's actually also inspired by the Muslim brothers, right? That's a very Muslim brother thing to do. My, my second remark about what's going on since uh, 2015 is that, you know, you just said he's going back to the 19th century, and that's that's um, there is there is a lot of truth to that. Mohammed bin Salman has is, he has to. I mean, I think he or his advisors have realized the uh, the very unstable ground on which um, you know the Wahhabi movement is 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 basically uh, putting the state on. Right, uh, that unstable ground is exactly what you were describing, Madawi, uh, when you were talking about obedience to um, and and uh, and you know forbidding rebellion. Obedience is limited because it justifies the rule by conquest, says Abdel al-Hamid. Uh, but that's pre- precisely the, I mean, the rule by conquest is precisely what the Saudi state is based on, right? So by, by basically limiting uh, rebellion, the Saudi state in its Wahhabi um, iteration is opening the gates to rebellion, right? By limiting all sorts of political engagement, all sorts of peaceful engagement with, with the public sphere, it's actually leaving no other choice to activists but to take arms, right? And so I guess it's that very unstable ground that Saudi elites right now are trying to, to stay away from or to, to transform. Uh, it's very unsure to me on what book what book they read. I mean, they, they, they read stuff that definitely comes from here, from Boston, Massachusetts, and from Cambridge, Massachusetts. <laughs> They're pretty certainly inspired by, yeah, I mean, the Boston Consulting Group, the, the Harvard Kennedy School. I mean, there are, you know, there, there has been a back and forth of experts between these different institutions since, what, the 1950s, 1960s, uh, but it's become even more prominent. So they read from the neoliberal book, but I don't see this as becoming a political project, right? So, I, I, you know, my sense is that the ground they're trying to, to stay on is actually as unstable, if not more unstable than the ground, uh, you know, the state of El-Malik Abdullah was, was based on. And the last thing is, is, um, is about political repression, right? I mean, repression has been extremely intense and severe in the past uh, six years. It was already present and not not much publicized. Uh, I remember, I remember it finding pretty difficult to find you know reliable figures that were agreed upon to uh, to describe the state of political repression in my own work. Right, so it's becoming even worse. And I think one of one of the things that that comes back very often when you talk to uh, to activists um, and activists in abeyance, right? I mean, activists waiting to come back to the to go back to the fore because right now, I mean, not, nothing is is really going on inside the country. But one item that comes back pretty often is the fact that. You used to know where the red lines were during uh, King Abdullah's rule. Now the red lines are still there, but you no longer know where they are, right? And so it, it's become way more difficult to actually engage in, in, in political uh, action because, or in public, in the public sphere, uh, because every single movement is actually being criminalized right now. Uh, yes, but I can see the kind of uh, resistance that is being staged already to this situation. You know, if we're thinking, oh, well, they're going to do uh, mosque sermons, uh, distribute it online, etc. That's not what is going on. But you could see every leisure activity and fun and concert is marred by one important and sad thing, and that is sexual harassment of women. 
every single, uh, uh, you know, it's not suddenly, uh, the, the government discourse is that all oh, these youth have never seen this before and it's the first time and that's why. And you, uh, you know, they are uh, engaging in this kind of activity. Uh, and then, then there's the there's state-run uh, press uh, 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 talking about Saudi youth as basically animals or criminals. And, but at a different level, it could be, you know, a sabotage, uh, uh, sabotaging the kind of leisure uh, that is staged. And uh, unfortunately, women will, will pay the price of this simply because, you know, there is no mosque imam who could uh, fire, you know, words against the illegitimate ruler or takfir or, uh, you know, sermons or summer camp. Uh, where they could tell the youth, you know, this is not the rightful dawlat uh, al-tawheed, the state of monotheism, but now it's it's appearing in different ways, which reminds me of what happened in Egypt in 2011, when women, uh, you know, uh, uh, if, if they participated in, in political activism, they got punished. In Saudi Arabia now, if they participate in state-sponsored leisure and fun, they are participate. Uh, they are punished uh, because those men can't get to the state in the traditional resistance uh, that we have studied. And uh, uh, you know, uh, so it's a new phase that could be dangerous, and it is actually. Uh, um, you know, the, it is touching now the fabric of society rather than the intellectual activist political field. That's really fascinating. Both both these uh, uh, comments, uh, Pascal and Madawi. Let me go through in the time remaining the the questions. So there are two for Madawi and then two or one in two parts for Pascal. So Madawi, Anis Lahbil has asked for names of famous reformist ulama. The second, an anonymous attendee is asked about how do you see the future of the senior ulama council in Saudi Arabia in relation to MBS? If the current mufti passes away, what are the characteristics that MBS would look for in a future mufti? And for Pascal, how can we use what we have learned with the three ideal type of studies of Islamist activism in Saudi Arabia and their relation to the state to help us think about the Anthropocene crisis you mentioned, meaning how do people organize in this environmental crisis and the relation to the green initiative of the state, for instance. And then again, a small addition, uh, will the future Mufti be another typical Wahhabi, Hanafi or something else? So two questions about the future Mufti. Uh, Badawi, do you want to begin? Yeah, I mean, names of famous reformist ulama in Saudi Arabia who are not recognized intellectuals or Islamologists. I'm not sure, you know, um, where and who is, is being referred to, but I mean, the, the people that uh, I talked about, um, they are not necessarily, all of them are famous ulama uh, uh, who are trained in ifta in issuing fatwa. So for example, young Abdullah al-Malki or Muhammad al-Abdul Karim, these are re regarded as Islam, uh, Islamic intellectuals who are not issuing fatwas, but they are writing about the texts, uh, uh, the Islamic text in ways that make them 
fit the, cat, the definition of Islamic reformers. But as I said earlier, not necessarily the religious scholars uh, who dominate the field, but there are other voices now. Um, and then the second question, uh, see the future of senior ulama council in relation to MBS. I mean, it is completely like toothless and they are meant to just issue the fatwa. And this has been going on even before MBS you know, from the 1960s. I mean, like, uh, uh, for example, when King Saud was dethroned, um, you know, the council was forced to issue a fatwa to say that King Faisal is the legitimate king and the previous king, King Saud, should abdicate. So there's a long history of this kind of uh, subjugation. Uh, but now they don't actually make the sound waves. There is a complete sidelining of, of the ulama and the council. I mean, there you get the image, the occasional image of the mufti coming to see Muhammad bin Salman, but that's it really. It's all the, what <laughs> Pascal described as the Boston consultancy, and basically the management consultancy groups that make the Saudi Arabia, even in the sense of designing a Saudi nation, a management consultancy firm would be given the job, you know, to, to construct a Saudi nation, to detach it from its previous, uh, you know, from the previous discourses on religious nationalism or pan-Islamism. Uh, yeah, I think these are the two for yeah. me. Pascal. Pascal, there is one for you. So we, we, we don't learn much from these three uh, styles of study in terms of, you know, uh, environmental thought, I think. And that's, um, you know, um, that, that, that would be a new direction in, in uh, studying activism. I mean, my, my way of studying activism has been to, uh, has been to study it in, in its environment, in, its, in, in the broad sense of the, of the word. So in its urban environment, in its spatial environment. Uh, I'm moving on toward environmental anthropology more and more, uh, and but no longer studying Saudi Arabia more. I'm, I'm, I think I'm, I'm, I'm studying Yemen now, and so that, that's that's a new um, that's a new project. But as, as as a response to your to your question, there has been a lot of work uh, done over the past 30, 40 years about um, Islamic tools in environmental uh, conservation. Which, which is absolutely fascinating. Some of it has been conducted in, in Saudi universities. There is that notion of al uh, uh which which is the um, you know the uh, a grazing system that uh, that is embedded in Islamic tenets and um, and is a, uh, a management an environmental management uh, system that is extremely effective and that goes absolutely against the grain of the developmentalist discourse that the state has, has adopted very often in Saudi Arabia, which has consisted of saying, uh, you know, the Bedouin are culprits for the degradation of their own environment, right? Uh, if we have desertification, it's because of the Bedouin, right? Which, which is a, which, I mean, going back to the notion of colonialism, I mean, this is definitely a colonial discourse that the Saudi state has, has, has embraced in some ways. In some other ways, the Saudi state has also, uh, you know, favored uh, studies of, uh, of al-Hanna and of traditional ways of, of uh, you know, preserving the environment. So, so um, yeah, there, there there are several responses to this question. It's a very it's a very multifaceted question, uh, and I don't have much to say about the um, uh, green initiatives of the of the state. Uh, you know, right now, uh, I mean, that sounds 
much of it sounds like like greenwashing to me and not not very serious ecological um, uh, thoughts. Yes, thanks. I mean, going back to Madaw, it's sort of the McKinsey model of Saudi nationalism. I, we have to close. I, I see suddenly we have started to get more questions, but uh, I'm afraid um, we are out of time. And uh, Osama, do you want to? Um, I thought I would just answer this last question, which is asking whether we're going to upload doing. the videos. And we plan to upload the videos on the Middle East Center uh, YouTube channel. But uh, I just want to thank um, all of you for uh, really, well, both of you for eye-opening insights and uh, allowing us to interrogate you for the last hour and a half uh, and learn so much. And I, I hope we can stay in touch. Um, I, I personally uh, am quite interested in, in your latest books. <laughs> Thank, thank you, you very much. Wonderful to see and, you all. And thank you, Faisal, for uh, chairing uh, the session. I look forward to seeing you, Faisal, in a couple of weeks. I don't know if you want to briefly say uh, something about the session from a couple of weeks from now. or uh, Yes. In two weeks from now, same day, same time, we have our third session, the title of which sadly escapes me because we have been enthralled by Saudi Arabia and have been captured by it. Right. Uh, today, but you will all receive announcements yeah. of the session. So thank you, um, thank you very well, much. Thank you very much for, for the invitation. It was a pleasure. Uh, Thanks. We thank hope you. to see you in person as we're yes. nearby. <laughs> yes, Absolutely. exactly. We'll have to Likewise. plan something. <laughs> thank you. Okay. Bye. All right. Bye. Bye. Bye.